Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. The first brand in your life as a child that made an impact on you? I think I would have to say Rawlings. Um, I was an avid baseball? baseball kid. Yeah, I played. Yeah, I would say I would say Rawlings that first glove. Still have it? I do. I do. Can you fit it in your hand anymore? <laughs> uh, I, it does actually. Because the question was how big it was when I when I, when I was a kid. No, I, it's. Um, I'm not sure. I'd. Uh, I'm not sure I play many innings with it anymore. It's pretty floppy. But um, now I do. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years. I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Tarek Hassan. He's the chief marketing officer of Petco, which is based in San Diego. Petco is a large pet product and service company. We get into talking about dogs and cats and love and service and vets and the opportunity to make pets and pet owner lives better. This conversation was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. Tarek is all about brand purpose. He talks about purpose as well as anyone I've met. This is my conversation with a very purposeful leader, Tarek Hassan. Tarek, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I am so looking forward to this. And my first question is, I want you to tell our listeners all about Milo. <laughs> Milo. Milo. Okay. Milo. Right, Milo. Um, Milo just joined the family about five months ago. And uh, I have to give a, a direct call out to Antonio Lucio on this because for the, the first- The CMO of Facebook. Yeah, and, and a great friend and mentor who took great joy in the first uh, year that I was with the company. Uh, poking at my profile pics because I was always showing up with one of the pups from the office. And so he was giving me grief, you know, for, for not having my own dog. And when was I going to finally get my kid a dog? <clears throat> and so uh, I kept saying to him, but you know, it's our studio pup. I didn't mm-hmm. rent a pup. This is one of the dogs is Hurley from down in the studio. But yeah, Milo joined the family in the fall. Uh, I have a 12 year old daughter who uh, previously had a dog and had been poking at us to, to get her a new one. So Milo is a black Labradoodle. He's a black Labrador, Australian Labradoodle. Yeah. yeah. And does uh, Milo sort of run the household? Uh, or does Milo rank in the household? Kind of number one? Well, everybody knows uh, if mom's not happy, then no one's happy. Um, so he falls second uh, 
to, to Carla. Okay, very um, good. But he's, you know, he's finding his feet, and as I say, he has no idea just how small he is. He thinks he's the biggest dog in the world. Uh, so, is what is Milo's favorite SKU at Petco? Milo, oh, that's an easy one uh, because you know we're doing the training, so you find these out. Milo's actually turns out to be one of our own brand products. He is a big, big fan of a uh, dried chicken uh, product. It's a very high value treat that he'll pretty much do anything you ask him to do for. It's a Sounds product called good. Wholehearted. Now we're here at the Deloitte Leadership Center, and there's a CMO training program going on here, and you you're participating in that. I just want you to share with our listeners, what else do you do for your own human development, leadership development, career development? What's your strategy? Because it's tough for senior people. It is. And increasingly important, right? Um, and I think as we continue to have a dialogue about our ability to bring the best version of ourselves, continuing to really cultivate what that best version has never been, I think, more important than ever. You know, how do we expect our people to do it if we're, if we're not doing it for ourselves? And so for me, it's a combination of a number of things. Um, I've always been international and that started through work, but I think from that came the love of travel. And as a result of that, the love of discovery of culture and things that come behind us. So travel has always been a very significant part of the respite uh, for me and my family chance to step away and <clears throat> visit other cultures and, mm -hmm. you know, load the senses in a different way. Um, absolutely part of it. Um, you know, it's, it's the connectivity um, to people, which play a significant role for me. And if I think about sort of the, the breadth of my, my social network, it's pretty diverse and, and there are a number of folks in there that play that role of either mentor or ability to help me, you know, challenge my thinking and really open some things up. And then there's some passion areas um, that some might think of as work related, but they're not. They're true passion areas. I spent a lot of time in the diversity inclusion area. Um, it's critical and important, you know, uh, grandkid of some immigrants and, uh, you know, growing up around the agenda and understanding what's important and, and being in a place now where, as a leader, you can actually impact that and they take that very seriously. But it's also something I enjoy when I'm outside of the office and thinking about you know, how do we celebrate those things and how do we contribute to, to the growth of others and continue to create the door open for those behind us. Who has been your most important mentor in your career? Well, I named one of them. Antonio Lucio has yeah. definitely been a very significant one for me. So you met Antonio at? Wow. So Antonio, I met as a client when I was on the agency side of the industry, uh, the same as I met my now CEO, uh, who's also a significant mentor, Ron Coughlin. Um, both of them were clients in the Pepsi world. And then I crossed over into the corporate world uh, with Ron when he was at HP, um, but known Antonio for, for nearly 20 years. Was he a good client? He was a wonderful client. Um, he, he's the same client as he is as a person. Um, and I think he's just all he's done over time has evolved and, and you know, like a good wine, uh, just gets better. And, and I think the thing that I was always drawn to him was, yeah, we did great work together, but he, at the heart of it, helped me understand the role of, of, you know, consumers at the center is a, is a, is a pretty clinical phrase. If you actually think about it, he helped me truly understand the, the, you know, understanding human motivation, both as individuals, um, but also as we brought it to the work. And he also, uh, was somebody who helped me understand that, um, you could be this individual, you could be this whole person that you could, you know, empathy, mm -hmm. critical component to understanding of, of how we do things, gratitude for those we work with, um, and certainly opportunity to take risk. And I think those things hold true for, for who I work with now with Ron, um, is leaders who, and I think that was true of the Pepsi culture at, at whole. I worked on the Pepsi world for 10 years <clears throat> and most predominantly with Gatorade and mm -hmm. then a number of the Pepsi businesses globally that, that, real focus in the CPG world of understanding human intent and really getting underneath that and understanding the motivations. 
was embodied by a lot of the leaders who didn't just believe it. They, they lived it. I want to ask you a few questions to get to know you a bit better before getting into your job at Petco. The first one is, were you a pet lover before Petco? Absolutely. And I, ironically, I'd say I was a, a dormant pet lover. Um, our family never had, you know, uh, a lot of pets other than fish. Um, which are, are great, but you probably kill them as well. And, you know, it's, uh, but we, we all, I always wanted a dog as a kid growing up and it just wasn't part of the, part of the family fabric. And so, uh, we had a dog previously, um, when we were living abroad. And so, yeah, I've, I've, I've always loved the category, um, from that perspective. You went to college in Canada. I did. And graduate school in the U.S., then began your career in advertising and stayed in that field for about 14 years. Yep. I have that about right. So why did you choose advertising and why did you stay with it so long? You know, ironically, I think advertising chose me in many ways. Um, when I was in grad school, I was doing a fair bit of work actually on the automotive industry. It was at a time when... Uh, GM in particular was starting to, to, to date myself, was starting to pivot towards really thinking through what brands meant and brand portfolio work. And it was the Phil uh, Zarella world and, and the uh, attempt to start to think about what will, how are they going to function as portfolios. So I initially interned um, in Detroit. I couldn't get into one of the, uh, the, the big three. Most of them were, were actually letting people go at the time as opposed to bringing bodies on. So the next best option was to, to go work for, uh, agency formerly known as uh, Darcy Macius Benton and Bowles, DMBMB. Sure, it was a PNG uh, agency. You would have worked with a long time PNG agency. Ended up in the backyard thinking, well, I'll work on the agency for a summer, meet some clients, and I'll work my way over. And I um, fell into the advertising world at a time when account planning and really thinking through what the role of brand strategy was inside the agency and understanding how that could potentially play a role between you know either being in the insights organization versus account service organization. And I fell in love with that space between really spending time with clients on working through brand strategy and the application to creative output and discovered, frankly, by accident, um, that that was a passion and something that I was quite strong at, the ability to really spend time with clients, understanding the, the business challenge, but then translating that into something that was motivating um, and that I could spend time also working with the creatives to, to develop a, a different output. and. Uh, as they say, when you're loving something, time is, sort of flies by. You don't really think about it. And it was a tremendous time in the age, in the industry. Um, early beginnings of digital, um, really early as a beginning of digital, and then moving through to understand what that, that could look like. And frank, frankly, it was the continued growth of trying to, and the challenge of trying to figure out how digital would work in the industry that ultimately had me switch over to the, to the corporate side. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, in that 14 years, what was the best marketing campaign you worked on the one you're most proud of i think the one i'm probably the most proud of um is the launch of propel fitness water with gatorade i did a lot of wonderful work with gatorade and the whole that i'm incredibly incredibly proud of but you know that was both a fantastic experience in terms of developing something from you know it's early embryonic stage truly identifying something in the marketplace where the data and the segmentation data told us there was a, a signal there to do something uh, we had found a, a co and your agency at that time was so that was interesting. I spent my time at two different agencies. Uh, I was at Footcone, um, and then once Quaker was purchased by PepsiCo, that created a conflict with Footcone, and I went on to be one of the founding partners of Element Seventy Nine, um, which was created as a result of the relationship of Pepsi buying the, the Quaker brands. 
So I worked with, through the Pep. That's how I uh, jumped on the Pepsi system as well. Was through that relationship we had uh, at Footcomb. We had the Aquafina business and we had Tropicana business, and then on the other part of the Footcomb business, we had all the Quaker business and Gatorade business. So those all came together. Um, and someone much smarter than me at the time, Brian Brian Williams, went on to be our our CEO at Element Seventy Nine. Had the smarts to suggest to Pepsi leadership that this was a an acquisition that shouldn't create a jettison of businesses to new agencies, but rather, you know, bring an opportunity to bring the businesses together and create something new under the Omnicom uh, network, which we did. It was a wonderful run, which really was why I stayed with it so long. The transition to then being part of building an agency um, and being part of a new leadership and creating a new culture was just a fantastic ride. Probably one of the best parts of my career. It's like a startup, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the biggest flop you had in those 14 years? Well, I can say that I have affectionately worked on two car brands that no longer exist. Um, I worked on Pontiac. I worked on the uh, the the end of the Oldsmobile era. Um, I don't know if I would call those the biggest flops that I worked on. They were challenged categories, and frankly, I think it was part of a smart, uh, you know, decompartmentalizing of of General Motors figuring out their overall brand structure. But certainly, at the time, those would have felt really, really challenging. Why do you think Pontiac and Oldsmobile became obsolete? Well, I don't know that they actually had. I think Oldsmobile was a little bit easier to 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 explain, right? When you have a a, a twin brother of you know Buick and and then an acquisition of of a brand like Saab. At the time, I think you just had too much too much clutter. When GM in that, bought in Saab, that segment, yeah. yeah. Pontiac, I think, is actually a bit of a shame. I think it was an opportunity to really think through. Uh, and it was probably too early to try and figure it out. Um, when you when you have that collision between how manufacturing functions versus, you know, the ability to create that uniqueness, um, I think it was just, a, you know, it was unfortunate. But I think uh, I think today it might have survived uh, because of their ability to be a little more agile in how they manufacture and create distinction across their their car lines. Mm-hmm. But there were just there was too much, you know, too much congestion in the category. You've now been on the client side for. 12, 13 years, something like that. You worked Bank of America, HP, Petco. So please share with our listeners one experience on the client side that you think has been very important for you, your development, sort of a defining leadership experience that helps make you who you are today. I think the initial crossover from the agency world to the to the corporate side and in my role at HP was a significant moment for me. I think I didn't really fully realize the significance of it until quite often as we do reflecting back until What was after. your first job at HP? What were you I, I went over and I was VP of uh, global marketing for the imaging and printing group. So pretty senior level. Yeah. And I will, I will tell you that was the awakening. You know, you think from the agency side when you're around a client for a long enough period that, you know, I get this. I, I understand how this stuff works. It's not really till you're inside that you really understand how all the pieces work together until you have to figure out how to work across a significant matrix structure um, until you have to realize the work that comes before the work, if you will, both in terms of the relationships and the collaboration that's required, um, the connection to make the, determine the sacrifices that you make because there are many to make. Um, I think that first year and a half, uh, looking back, was insanely overwhelming. Um, I have no problem acknowledging at this point in my career, I was way over my head in a wonderful learning experience, but also an incredibly challenging experience. And it was global on top of it. So um, 
we were, and it was not only was it global, it was global at a time. I joined in 08. So, you know, Recession. great, great timing to join an organization of that kind of scale. When we were going through some wonderfully um, smart things to do in terms of where to take the organization, but that whole pendulum swing between a decentralized global structure and a centralized global structure and bringing it back to a centralized approach. Um, yeah, I cut my teeth um, learning fast and making a number of tremendous mistakes that I've learned a, a lot from with a, with a couple of great leaders that, that gave room to do that and guided. And I can look back and I think it's had a significant impact on, on, on who I am today and how I approach things in a very different fashion. You made a big change agency to client into a complicated client at a complicated time in a global job. So what would be your advice to someone who's making a similar change, you know, changing industries or going from the services side to the client side? What would be your advice on how to onboard and get off to a great start? Well, I think there's a, I think there's a few things. I think, uh, you know, in, in marketing, we still work in service of. So I think that was actually one of the easiest parts, and I think it actually did help me, was coming out of a service-based mindset from agency and maintaining that, I think, was important um, because we do work in service of our businesses. Uh, the accountability is higher and the requirements of our, of our deliverables are higher. But I think maintaining that mindset uh, has actually helped me um, because it helps you think differently about your, depending on the structure of the organization you work in, right? In the case of HP, um, and even my current organization, you are functioning in supportive lines of businesses. Very, you know, unlike uh, other experiences I had with like a PepsiCo, where marketing is the line of business. Um, so I think having that experience was has always been a positive one for me. Uh, understanding the role that we play and, and the collaboration that's required around that. I think what I would say is um, don't underestimate, you know, the the complexities to it, but embrace them and. You know, it's going to be scary, but do it. And I think you uh, you have to go in and, you know, find yourself a handful of great people that you can link yourself to and, and get great mentorship from and who aren't afraid to tell you when, you know, you made the wrong turn on occasion and are there to help pick you up and dust you off and figure out how to do it differently. Um, but also don't be afraid to make mistakes and make smart mistakes. Um, you can't go at these things timidly, at least from my perspective. I've never been one that, you know, that was afraid of those kind of mistakes. Um, sometimes, <laughs> you know, have made bigger ones than others that I wish I thought about a little bit differently. But it's something that I, I think we, as a leader now, it's something I, I take a lot of focus on, which is how do you create an environment where it's safe to make those kind of mistakes? And I think you have to create. How do you create an environment where people feel free to stretch, stumble, fail, learn from it? Yeah, I think um depends on the culture that you're at, right? So how the leadership represents themselves as a whole, not just yourself, um, is critical. How do you reflect that as a culture? How do you reward it as a culture? What are the values you put in as an organization? It's something that actually that um, Ron's been working with our leadership very closely on right now is really defining what are our leadership values and holding people accountable to it. But those values um, allow that expression. And then I think depending on the culture or the, uh, the situation that your business is in at the time, you know, I'm in retail, right? I'm in brick and mortar retail that everyone loves to talk about. I think we're getting over it finally, but talk about sort of the retail apocalypse. I don't think that's the case. I think it's, it's an opportunity to really reinvent. And it's why we're starting to have successes. We are taking chances. We are doing things differently. Um, and then I think you have to reward it. That's one of the things that at my leadership, I've sat with my team and said, we've had a, we've had a challenge of how do we get an organization to feel like it's okay 
try it, see what happens, learn, repeat. And now we're, we're actually putting things in place where we're going to reward it. So how do you reward uh, experimentation? We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual-first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. Fast failure, taking chances. We're literally starting to, as an organization, openly recognize it. So quarter, this year, actually quarterly, we're going to put in a, a little bit of a perk where we're going to celebrate. We're going to have leaders put forward um, examples where their folks took initiatives and great thinking, but maybe just didn't get there. And we're going to call them out and we're going to celebrate them. It, 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 and it sounds uh, initially a little bit like a head scratch, but... I, th- I don't think there's any other way to do it than to help your organization know that there is great victory that comes out of really, really smart failure. Um, and we spend too much time as an organization r- relishing in the obvious victories. Um, but, uh, you know, you go back to the example you asked me earlier about one of the bra- greatest uh, you know, campaigns I was involved in, I was most, most proud of. You know, Propel was in, in test market for almost uh, two and a half years. And on life support multiple times before it eventually went national and became a hundred million dollar brand. And I don't have to tell you, there aren't many brands that do that in first year national launch. And and that came out of looking at the mistakes and rethinking it, and but having a data-driven, factual understanding of where we thought we could get, and then reevaluating our way along the way, right? So it, they they still have to be grounded in in smarts. They still have to be grounded in factual elements, but you got to create that safety for people to, you know, try and then try again. And then in a digital world, the speed at which we need to test and learn is just increasing. Right? Are there cultures out there that you admire for creating the conditions for experimentation and, and risk and failure all, you know, in calculated ways? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I affectionately refer to what I'm doing right now as sort of a, a corporate startup um, experience because we are in such a, you know, we're privately held <clears throat> and we are in a reinvention in terms of what we're trying to become. And I think we, I'm constantly looking at, you know, either whether it's the D to C and digital startups that have actually thought through not only how do they engage customers through the test and learn performance side of it, but have been smart enough to think about what is the brand that they need to wrap around it. So an Airbnb is a, a great example to me um, that not only understands how to acquire, but understands how to create value uh, as a brand around that and the way they think about doing it. Um, I think, you know, Nike over the years always continues to provide that reinvention mindset. Apple certainly uh, provide that reinvention mindset. You've been CMO at Petco for about 18 months. First question, does Petco have a brand purpose? Is that concept relevant at Petco? It's a wonderfully well relevant brand uh, purpose. And it is the most significant thing I actually found when I came to the organization that was already sitting there, but hadn't been really activated beyond the internal organization. Um, the organization itself its employees, all 25,000, whether you're in our stores or whether you're in our, our headquarters, 
they get up every day to try and impact the quality of lives of pets and the parents that love them. That was everywhere when I joined the organization. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I have worked on businesses and categories countless over the years where you strive to try and carve that out and define it. And here was this wonderful organization where it literally pervades the people. You can't help it when you walk in that feel it. We just hadn't really grabbed it as a category and recognized how we could actually lean on it to drive the business because the muscles of, of the, and, it, and it's not uncommon, like a lot of retail businesses had been leveraging, you know, transactional focus on retail and not really thinking through how you could leverage differentiation by driving purpose. And then I looked around and I looked at our category and, and kind of joyfully thought, okay, we're not too late because no one's really playing in the purpose aspect of what it means to be a pet parent, what it means to actually try and enhance the quality of lives of pet. And so our purpose is to do that. It's to get up every day and improve the quality of the lives of pets, the parents who love them and our partners. And so it's critical that purpose also pervades what we do internally. And then that's been converted into our brand positioning, which it's a great setup. Thanks, because we're going to actually relaunch the brand this year around the notion that we're a company that will go as far for pet and pet parents as they go for each other. And oh, so nice. truly understanding that relationship and that meaningful relationship, and you'll appreciate this from the number of, you know, mom, baby brands you've worked on and, and parent baby brands. That's the relationship. The analog to the human relationship of care of a child holds directly to the way we think about our pets and the role that they play in our lives. And that's a wonderful canvas that we're starting to really invest in. And not only invest in it as a brand, but how we innovate as an organization the services we're bringing to the market, the way we're bringing our, our approach to the market to work with customers. And in the next year, you'll really st start to see some changes where, um, yes, you have retail moments, and that's what drives our business. But those retail moments are actually things that take place inside of us becoming a company that helps you really think about the full 360 care of your, of your pet in a sometimes predictive way and help you, you know, keep the things that you so what's your, been your greatest, you come in and you discover this culture where the purpose is there. It may not be as explicit as, as it could have been. So you're helping to make it explicit. You're starting to activate it, bringing it to life in your daily work and with your, I'm sure you're getting into re rewards and recognition. What's your biggest challenge? I mean, you have a culture that's really wants to do this. It's already, so but, but when you're trying to bring this to life, because yeah. I find companies often find their purpose or refine it or rediscover it. But baking it into how they do business is where it often falls apart. So what's your learning in doing that? My biggest challenge is time. Your the, time or our, the organization's the, the, time? The, the, the speed at which we need to get some of these things done. So it's wonderful that we've uncovered the power of this opportunity. We took our first step last year when we pulled all of the preservatives and artificials off of the shelves. It's $100 million in, in dog and cat food and treats that we took out and had to find a way to replace the revenue. And that gave us a direct signal that- So that was a very symbolic activation of your purpose. Unbelievably, and the response in the marketplace confirmed for us that this was a, a path we could continue to move down. But while we're doing this, right, I don't, I don't have to tell you the, the impact of what the digital application of e-commerce is and how fast that those markets are growing. Um, 
the speed in which we need to continue to come together as an organization to be successful, both as a brick and mortar organization and a digital e-commerce organization and truly become omni-channel um, is critical. The money and the time um, that it requires to make those changes uh, with your technology infrastructure and what it requires to bring the data together in a very different way so that it it's all present. It is in most of our organizations, but can you bring it together in a way that you can start to get the right signals to understand your customers so that you can actually be contextually relevant in a way that they say yes with you and it's differentiated with you and I want to be part of you and I need to stay connected to you. Um, that's the sprint and and there isn't time. We have to move quickly to achieve that. And it's a great forcing function um, for us, but there's no question that the requirement for not only to have that mapped over time, but then to ensure the organization has focus on the priorities of those things and understand that that's job one and it's okay to put down something, right? Because it's we all get caught up in the too much. And so how do you have real laser focus on having an organization understand what is the mission? What are the key priorities we're trying to achieve and, and how to get there? So on a scale of one to 10, if 10 was perfect, where are you on the omni-channel scale? I'm probably a, a hard judge. I, I'd say we're still in the first inning in many ways. I think we're, you know, we're probably a six. Um, having said that, when I look at our growth year over year, uh, we're closer to an eight um, in terms of performance, but that What's been the biggest challenge in going omni-channel to bring your purpose to life and have a you know, wonderful customer experience? No, I think there's a few things. Um, I think really that balance between what is the experience you actually you know, want to create, understanding your true customer experience across the channels. Um, ultimately, how do you start to think about the financial infrastructure and how you measure the dollars across because there are gives and you know give and takes that you have to figure out whether it's your pricing strategy across those things or whether it's your merchandising obviously the ability to carry a, a much larger proliferation of merchandise on uh, e-com channel versus what you can have on a shelf um, so it's everything from the nuts and bolts of really making sure you know that strategy aligns itself to then the actual cohesion of that actual experience the customer has with you between when they come in the store um, and how they engage with you either on online or, or increasingly for us, well, how they'll engage with us on the app um, and the relationship we create with them. And that's why what we're the real, the most significant pivot we've made in the last 18 months is really getting ourselves surrounded around that customer and ultimately getting the data around them so that we actually understand name of dog, the breed, the size, the medical history, what they're, yes, what they're purchasing and eating, but what they've done at the vet, what they've done at the groomer. Have they missed a vaccination? Have they missed a pest treatment? Bringing those together so that we can actually connect with you as a parent is something we can only do uniquely. And there's virtually no one else in the category that can have that entire pet relationship. That is as complex as it sounds. And it's also as simple as it sounds. How do you know you're making progress on bringing your purpose to life? How do you measure it? How's that changing? We're doing a number of things. Um, as you know, if you don't have the purpose and you create a brand purpose that works inside an organization, you might have a little initial external success, but it won't be the long-term success that you need. So we're doing measurement both externally and internally. The external ones, we're using a lot of the typical tools, but we've really retooled how we think about brand tracking and brand equity such that it's tied back to customer satisfaction in a unique way and understanding what the actual in market results are. So our ability to use those tools obviously is much greater and, and gives us a fantastic 
understanding of it. But what's wonderful about that is if you then also do the same kind of measurement internally, in our case, we're using Medallia to understand not only our customer satisfaction, but our employee engagement and intersecting both of those and looking for, for places where we can both provide the partners in our stores real clear priority focus on what brings the most satisfaction to our customers and then measure against those things. I want you to talk about your job. So we have endless curiosity from our listeners about what marketers do, especially CMOs. So tell us about your work. You know, if you were to put your work into a pie chart, what would that look like? How do you spend your time? What do you value? Well, first of all, I think you start with what is the actual mission of a marketer inside of an organization. And I have a belief that it is a lot more than just the campaigns we talk about and what happens in, inside. I think we have an accountability to um, really create brand with a capital B, like you're talking about, that impacts culture, that helps the organization understand what the meaning of that brand is and how it applies to what we get up and do every day. And then I think we have to figure out how we then express that in the market, right? And so what does that look like? So in my world, that includes everything from all of the, the customer data and the CRM infrastructure sits with, with my organization, but so does now um, our call centers, um, which was a recent so your move call centers did. are under marketing. They right? are because what is, is there a more significant link to customer satisfaction than a customer calling into you um, and moving beyond just how do I solve a potential transaction problem? to listening and actually client understanding and client telling and actually thinking through what the next value for them, right? So they become, we talk a lot about this sort of separation between becoming a, moving from being a call center to being a true customer service support center, right? And understanding how to do that. But I'm, you know, but also what do we do in terms of how that culture comes to life inside the, inside the stores? So work really closely with our store operation teams to make sure that the translation of our purpose is also impacting how they think about lining up 15,000 partners in stores every day because they're the ultimate expression of that. So I think, you know, to answer your question, we think through what we have to do to develop the right strategies to drive our business. But I think we also think through at the heart of it, the deep understanding of that customer. And I think that's been the biggest fundamental change for us. And I think a lot of retailers thought their job was to create great distribution for brands that had that deeper understanding of customers we've turned that on its head and said, no, we're actually going to get some of those unique brands to come into our channel because we have such a deep understanding of the the pet market and the parents that love them that we're going to do things that are unique that make those those brands want to spend time with us and actually be successful in market together. Would you say that's uh, the strongest um, new capability you're building or a capability you're strengthening this, you know, complete customer understanding and empathy and insights? Or is there something else you would say you're trying to build to make to pet, to make Petco's marketing ever better and more distinctive? I think there's no question that getting those customer signals right <clears throat> is a significant. Last year, you know, uh, 2019 was really the year of bringing that data together. It was in a variety of different places across different lines of business, uh, getting it into a single data lake and getting it organized to understand lifetime value. Um, so from a business perspective, how do you grow understanding that value? But then how do you gain an insight and understanding into those high value cohorts in such a way that you can, you know, it's great to have great oil deposits, but then you got to refine it, right? And the refining comes from that really clear understanding of, of what their desires are. So that was, there's no question that was a significant one for us. Um, I also think just getting really consistent around 
our point of view in the market. And so going back to the food example, that was our stance of saying that we're going to use a really simple requirement here. If it's good for the pet, then it's good for the business. And we're going to show up and make those decisions on that basis. So we started with food. You'll see us start to make some other decisions in other categories very shortly. And then you're seeing us do things like expansion of services, which I think for us is also a significant differentiation than versus a lot what a lot of retail categories face is to not only try and figure out how do you win the game of many cases, commoditized products that are on your shelves versus other channels, but also bring you in because we now have vet services and we have grooming services and we have training and we're now doing in-home services and really start to shift from thinking about you know, merchandising share and more about total share of pet wallet and understanding what that relationship is. That's a, that's a fundamental shift of how you go to market and how you get up every day to think about what you do. And it's fundamentally different how we as partners think across the businesses together, which is both a lot of fun. Um, but that's the challenge. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. We had uh, Vino Vijay on as a guest on the podcast, and he's the CMO of H&R Block. They're doing a lot of, they have, you know, 10,000 locations and they service millions and millions of customers. And I asked him what the single biggest driver is of customer satisfaction in his business. I thought I might get accuracy or saving people money. He said it was the greeting. When someone comes into a store, it's the first 10 seconds of how they are greeted, accepted. The relationship begins to form. What's your reaction to that? I, I think it's wonderfully spot on, right? And and in that case, you know, it's, it's a critical importance of someone's financial well-being in terms of what their deliverable is. But at the end of the day, it's still it's numbers on the page, right? And yet, it's it, what's behind that greeting is a reassurance that you understand how important those numbers on the page are to me, and that you're going to do the right job. So, wonderfully important. You now add that into our world, and talk about a you know, a small furry being that can't communicate directly to you and the love and care that that, that individual's looking for. And a simple piece of, a uh, simple insight we had, like 98% of all pet parents want to believe they're feeding their pets the right thing. Of course they do. And less than 50% know if they are. And so that's a that's wonderful opportunity, but it, that's the tension, right? And so this is where I get excited because this is where I also believe to date um, the algorithm can't beat that. The ability for a human to actually engage, and in our case, putting that data in the hands of our partners in the floor, which is what we are doing. Our partners have access to them as they have tablets with the information on your individual data of your pet. But then combining that with that human confidence, that human caring, and that human authority of what they know, we think is an incredibly big differentiation and absolutely critical. Our partners are the, the, the secret sauce to our winning. And we, in fact, last year... So when you, when you say partners, it's companies like... No, I'm actually referring to our, our actual employees on the floor. Employees, we, call okay, them, we call them we partners. Call them partners sorry. Okay. We do. And last year, we actually flipped the model on the head. I flipped it on its head and said to them, be clear. We actually work for you guys. 
the, the, the structure of communication actually starts from the floor and works its way back to, to what we do as an organization because they're, they're front line with our folks and our customers and understanding that. So purpose and experience and then having the understanding of that context of your customer, those are the big three that I would say as a marketer, my team has got to be getting up every day and making sure that purpose continues to get laser focused in terms of how we put that across the organization and externally to customers making sure the experience then lines up with it across 1500 outlets plus across what we do from digital um, by no means perfect but on the right journey and that purpose helps you guide that and then making sure you understand the context for creating that experience by keeping your pulse on on who these folks are and what's important to them in our case it's joy right i mean we get to do that with the pleasure and joy and love that these folks have for their for their pets you sound like you love your job Tarek. so what are you most proud of in your first 18 months and what do you feel like has been your biggest miss? I, you know, I'm proud of a number of things. Um, on a personal note, I'm incredibly proud to be part of a, an organization that when the new leadership came into place, we were faltering. Um, the performance was not where it needed to be. Um, but I'm proud of how we came together as a leadership, uh, define what those clear objectives were to get back to successful the leadership of, of Ron and our, of our core team. You, you, Ron's your CEO and you started about the same time he did. Yeah. Ron started just ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Um, were you recruited together? Or, no, no, no. Actually, ironically, um, no, Ron asked me to come in and initially work on a consulting project with him. And I frankly was just taken by what the opportunity was. Um, uh, initially I was brought in to do the strategy work for him on, on the nutrition play we did. There's a, you know, obviously a lot of parallels to food and beverage from our sure. past lives. And, and, he said, well, you know, why don't we make this work? And, and so it was a wonderful opportunity that I, I just couldn't take a pass on. So I'm really proud of how that leadership he's brought together has come together. And, but I'm even more proud of how our organization has responded. We just completed our fifth consecutive quarter of growth. Congrats. Um, and, and I don't have to tell you, those things are, are not only motivating for, you know, your external credit critics, but your internal motivation. It shows comes the purpose is working. Yeah, right? ab- absolutely. And I couldn't be more proud of then as a result of that. That doesn't happen. Unless the folks that are working for us every day are are grabbing that purpose and and bringing it through, so to know that we have people that have stepped up, have taken that challenge, and are starting to see it through, uh, I'm incredibly proud of. I'm really proud of the stance we took last year. I think we did make a on taking out yeah food without yeah that's a bold you know look when we started that process we you eliminated you know, hundred million dollars of sales of products that did not have natural ingredients yeah and, and as you know you know you don't get to take those out and, and not figure out how to put the dollars back. But the reality is that decision to do that opened its door to a variety of new opportunities to replace it. So removing those businesses and those brands from our shelves created new opportunities for now unique brands that we have. So Champion was a significant player that came in, would not have come into the fold had we not taken that stance. And then existing partners that we have, um, you know, some of the bigger, bigger uh, package goods companies that were in the category innovated. So, you know, yes, we took Fancy Feast out, but now we have a Fancy Feast Naturals. And so I'm, I'm incredibly proud of, of that we did it. We, we did that transition. People didn't think we'd pull it off. Um, and then, you know, the challenge around it now is how do you drive additional retention and how do you keep those customers aligned? You asked me Your what- Your biggest disappointment or miss or- You know, I, I think for me, I think there's probably, as a marketer, there's probably a couple of areas. Um, we moved incredibly fast on the data side, but but the reality is it's never fast enough. And I think what was probably my biggest disappointment last year and is spilling into this year, we have to we have to really go go get after it, um, is how we try and improve 
our, some of our performance marketing capabilities and really starting to allow those data signals that we have to impact how we optimize the spend that we have. It's, it's, it's just such precious dollars. And if you do it right and the information's around, it's there for you, you can, there's money on the trees. And so going after that, I think is a, is a critical thing for 20 for us. I want to talk about your relationship with your CEO, Ron. You came in about the same time. The business was not as healthy as you'd like it to be. It's now looking better. What is that relationship like? What sorts of things do you talk to Ron about? How often do you see him? You know, what's, uh, what can we learn about your chemistry and your relationship and how you work together that would help others? Um, so we're, you know, we're a $5 billion company, but we're, we're still pretty flat and we're pretty small. So we see each other a lot, all of us as a leadership. We're, we're visible and we're in- Are you co-located? Yeah, we're all co-located yeah. and, and it's a very much walk the hallways uh, kind of organization. Um, although we're pretty open, so they're not a lot of hallways to walk. Um, but we get together as a leadership uh, weekly. Um, as, for, as it relates to my relationship with Ron, I always say, you know, I have the joy of working for a CEO who was a CMO. And I have the challenge of working for a CEO who was a CMO. Um, and, but I also have the pleasure of working with someone who I've known for, for 20 years um, and have worked across a variety of challenges um, and who I know both as a friend and mentor, as well as a, as well as a leader that I've worked for. Um, those are rare combinations. And when you get to do that, um, that's, that's, you know, that's a pretty good pleasure. And for me, you know, he jokes around with me and says, boy, you must be a sucker for punishment. This is the third time you've done it once as a client, once at HP and then back, back again. But, um, that's been a, a pleasure and an opportunity. What makes Ron a good leader? I, you know, the first thing I'd say what, what makes him a great leader is he's incredibly self-aware. Um, he's focused. He tells us where, where we need to go, but he also, yeah, he listens hard and he understands where his strengths are and where there's a reason he's brought people in and around him, uh, to bring additional view on it. His connectivity to this organization is frankly like none I've ever seen with a leader. He has now officially put a pin in all 50 States, um, since joining the organization. Uh, visiting countless stores, having roundtables with those who are who are in the stores every day, and seeing what's working, what's not working. He has had laser focus on what the elements for our success are, um, as he says, you know, build the plan, work the plan, the plan will work, and he reminds us constantly. Um, and I think his ability to, you know, recognize not only when each of us have made smart decisions or maybe some not so smart decisions, and that holds equally true for him. You know, you asked me my relationship with him, and it's, it's very open, and I think it's open across organization. And he um, he holds us to a standard, not only as business professionals, but as individuals um, and leaders um, that are tied to those values. He's he's the one that has put a lot of the pieces back in place to our organization around the importance of value. You've spent most of your career, as has Ron, working in publicly traded companies, and now you're working for a wonderful pet company that's owned by private equity, I think, CBC Capital, and a pension fund. Yep. How's that different? Working, is it different? Does it affect your work, your daily work, how you work as a leadership team, or is it the same? You know, I, I think there's, I think it always depends on who are your, your sponsors. I, I will tell you, in our case, um, we have sponsors who are keenly aligned with the strategy. If you look at our growth strategy, it's, it's tied to some things that require some pretty significant investment. The most obvious one is what we're doing with vets and marketplace. Um, it starts with- Tell me about that. You're doing- 
Well, we're, we're expanding. Well, the largest expansion of putting vets in store. Got it. Um, which is a critical connect to that relationship mm-hmm. I was talking about, right? A full, a full link to your medical relationship than deeper relationship with your pet. But it starts with, again, it goes back to your leadership. And and it starts with Ron and his relationship with the board and the expectations he sits with that, sets with them. And then we as a leadership and, and the expectations we set with them and when we meet with them. Um, I, I think the biggest difference I've actually enjoyed, to be honest, which is we're not working to a quarterly clock based on the streets requirements. We're working on a quarterly clock based on commitments we've made uh, to grow this business, commitments we've made to create a better world for our and a better outcome for our partners. And then we've got PE partners who are on that journey with us and hold us accountable to it. Um, that my biggest difference I know is there is, is, is frankly less about um, the change of the work that we do and more the way we report out and who we're reporting to. I've enjoyed it. You save time. We do. We make decisions quickly. And I will tell you, not only with the, with, with the board, but even as a leadership, um, I, I was, I've been kind of shocked on a range of decisions we've made as, as a company very, very quickly. Um, you know, again, you think about the kind of dialogue you would have had with a public board on a hundred million dollar change in, in your business, a very, very different context. I want to close out the last part of the podcast with some Questions about you more as a person and as a leader for insights for myself and our listeners. So what do you consider your greatest strength as a leader? Oh, I'm not very, I'm not very good at that. I think sometimes I, one of my, my biggest challenges is sort of allowing myself to lean in and understand those and accept them. But I think for me, um, that greatest strength is around uh, looking for that connection with customers, understanding the complex and making it incredibly simplistic, translating that into, you know, uh, powerful things to act on. Um, I think it's a, my ability to collaborate uh, across my, my organization and work with partners to understand their needs uniquely. Um, but I think more so away from the work and I think increasingly with age, um, my desire to, to really understand empathy for, for situations, to look for that diverse mindset. Um, and figure out how do I how do I bring some of that to to work every day? Our, our critical elements. What are you still working on? Uh, patience, um, and I think I'm still working uh, a lot on. You know, as we move into these leadership roles, how do you how do you step back and let your folks go do what they do well every day in the same way some of the best leaders I worked for allowed me to do, and particularly when you're driving transformation across an organization. Uh, do a better job of setting that vision. Make sure your folks know what, what they're trying to achieve and trust that they they can go out there and do it. And again, go back to can you create the right safe environment for to do it. And some days I get up, I think I'm great at it. And other days I got to get up and try it again the next day for sure. So a brand that you would really miss if it went away. You know, that's interesting. Do we, do we miss them until they're gone, right? A brand that I would miss if it went away. I, I'll tell you one that recently went away, mm-hmm. and I actually wrote them to ask why they made it. It wasn't even a brand. It was a, it was a flavor skew. I'm a coconut water drinker, and uh, uh, Vita Coca had a, had a lemonade product. 
it just disappeared. It was my it was my daily <laughs> ritual. <laughs> I wrote them and asked why it went away. But that's a lousy answer. I don't want to use that one at all. Um, but it, it it went away, and I literally wrote them and, and said, they haven't responded. They did. They responded oh, nice. and just said, "Well, you know, unfortunately." There weren't uh, many people yeah. like you. They didn't say that part. They just said, it, you know, we took we took away from our strategy, but we have some other wonderful flavors we'd like to introduce you to. <laughs> so if you were not in marketing, what would you be doing? If I was not in marketing, I'd probably be doing one of two things. I'd, I, I would, I might have pursued the incredibly challenging life of uh, culinary and, and been a, I love, a, I love food. I love to cook. And I may have pursued the, the restaurant business. So I guess I'm glad I'm in marketing because that is a challenging, challenging industry to get up. Do you cook at home? I do. Yeah, it's 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 a both a a pleasure and a bit of a of a decompression for me. Or I, I probably would have gone into design. I probably would have gone into interior design um, uh, or some aspect of that. I've, I've I just didn't. I don't think I really understood how much I loved it and how much a joy I had around it and and actually ability to lean into it as a language. And frankly, until my my experience in the agency world, I think it was more of an uncovery for me. Who else would you like to hear on the CMO podcast? Alicia Hatch from Deloitte Digital. Why would you like to see Alicia? I just think she brings a really unique perspective, given that that's not sort of her, her natural experience of where she came from in terms of what she does. And she leads up Deloitte Digital, yeah. which has acquired some agencies. Yeah. I think bringing a different model and approach to, to how we approach. She's a very inspiring leader, yeah. too. That's a good And thing. I think, you know, she's, she's got a wonderful mindset around her own personal journey and how she applies that. Tarek, we'll end with one question. Anything you want to ask me? I would love to ask you uh, what led you to start this podcast? Curiosity. I just thought it would be fun and interesting to get into other people's head and heart. I thought it would be very energizing for myself and of course our listeners and I just thought it would be um, a way for me to continue to grow, evolve, learn, be inspired. And it's been all of that and more. It's a good reason. It's a good place to get in life. Well, thanks, Tarek. It's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for the opportunity. That was my conversation with Tarek. I love the lessons he learned when he moved from the advertising business to the client side at Hewlett Packard. He talks very vulnerably about how difficult that was. Uh, it was uh, poignant and heart-rendering. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.